Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, and welcome back to the Progressive Britain History Podcast, part of the Progressive Britain Podcast series. In each episode, we look at different aspects of the Labour Party's past with an aim of promoting a clearer understanding of its contested history, perhaps busting a few myths on the way, introducing some new ways of thinking, and making connections between Labour's history, its present, and its future. The podcast is hosted by me, Laura Beers, Professor of British History at American University in Washington, D.C., and Steve Fielding, Professor of British Politics at Nottingham University in the UK. You want to say hi, Steve? Hi, Steve. (laughs) (laughs) Um, In each episode, Steve and I come together with a special guest to discuss a a theme central to understanding labor politics, past and present. For our inaugural podcast before the summer recess, we had politics professor Andrew Gamble on to discuss the history of the so-called progressive dilemma within the labor movement or the oftentimes uneasy relationship between progressive intellectuals and organized trade unionism. Today, we'll be talking about inequality with senior lecturer in the Department of International Politics at City University and author of Michael Young's Social Science and the British Left, 1945 to 1970, published by Oxford University Press in 2020, Lise Butler. Lise, you want to say a brief hello? Hi, thanks so much for having me on. It's great to be here. It's great to have you. So today we'll be talking about inequality, and it's been an issue that's been very much in the news these last couple of weeks, since Prime Minister Johnston announced on September 7th plans to raise the national insurance contribution by 1.25% to help pay for the cost of the pandemic and fix the funding gap in social care provision. But some critics within his own party and on the labor opposition benches were quick to condemn the tax as unfair because because it places an unequal burden on people in work as compared to pensioners and those living off of investment income, and that this raises issues central to the question of equality of sacrifice, who should carry the cost of social care provision. But when we talk about equality in politics, we're not only or even arguably principally talking about equality of sacrifice, but also about equality of opportunity and equality of outcome. And today, we'd like to discuss labor's evolving relationship with all three of these concepts, and how these different types of equality relate to one another. So I'm just going to briefly lay out the three different strands of inequality um, that politicians have seen it um, arguably as their job to to combat over the past century. And then we'll have a a kind of largely free-flowing discussion about um, labor's relationship to these ideas 
um, across the past 100 years or so. So equality of sacrifice, um, which has really been the type of the fairness brought up in the context of the social care tax, has traditionally been tied up with thinking about taxation and has been part of the progressive discourse since the early 20th century when the new liberals coalesced around a policy of progressive taxation and raising estate taxes or death duties. Such ideas were embraced by Ramsay MacDonald, the Labour Party's first leader and prime minister, and formed part of the 1918 Labour Manifesto, Labour and the New Social Order, which called for a wealth tax to help pay for the First World War. Um, but when we think about not just equality of sacrifice, but equality of opportunity, arguably the word that comes to most people's minds is meritocracy. And this is a term that was coined by British sociologist Michael Young, on whom Lees is published in his 1958 dystopian novel, The Rise of the Meritocracy. And we'll talk a lot about that idea of meritocracy um, over the next 40 minutes. Finally, and arguably most problematically for the left, is the concept of equality of outcome. The idea that society's rewards ought not to be parceled out either arbitrarily or even meritocratically, but rather, as Karl Marx wrote in 1875, society should ask from each according to his ability and give to each according to his needs. The idea that need and not merit should determine rewards has always sat uneasily with the English population, as well as the American, I would add, and helps to explain the historic unpopularity of equality as a policy priority at least as measured by opinion polling. So having laid out those strands, I'm gonna turn it over to, um, to Lee's, our guest, and ask you um, to reflect both on your own work on Young and others who um, were part of the progressive social science policy sphere in the 1940s and 50s, and to think a bit about um, contextualizing how the different members of Attlee's labor government elected in 1945 understood these three types of inequality and what, if any, role the government should have in tackling them. Thank you so much for having me on. Um, and it's a really rich and intriguing topic. Um, when I was thinking about preparing uh, to come on this podcast today, um, and you mentioned that um, you'd like me to speak, kind of open speaking about the Attlee government, uh, my first thought was to go to Labour's 1945 election manifesto let us face the future um, and do a, you know, a quick PDF search for uh, words like inequality. And of course, um, interestingly, the word inequality or equality doesn't appear at all in Labour's 1945 election manifesto, which I think is useful, actually, um, in terms of um, setting the stage and framing how we do think about uh, the centrality of equality um, in that government, in that policy consensus. Um, now, um, this, of course, doesn't mean for a second that concerns about equality or inequality weren't completely central to the Attlee government's policy uh, project. Um, and it's worth saying, by the by, that Let Us Face the Future was, of course, uh, not so much written, but kind of brought together as a whole by Michael Young, um, who is famously associated with the concept meritocracy and who we will talk about a little bit more in this podcast, I think. Um, so... Um, I see um, the, so, you know, well, well, we might not see the word equality in Let Us Face the Future. We do see terms like jobs for all. We do see a commitment to uh, expanding educational uh, uh, access. Um, and um, central to um, particularly the latter project is a kind of longstanding um, concern or preoccupation, conviction 
that uh, within the population as a whole, um, there is a kind of uh, profoundly untapped, uh, under-accessed um, and under-resourced um, kind of pool of wealth and talent, uh, which hasn't been given the opportunity to thrive, um, and that the product of a socialist or even a progressive government needs to be to try and in some way um, rectify that. Um, and so the educational reforms, um, the 1944 Butler Act, and then the educational reforms, which are subsequently um, uh, enacted by the Atlee government, really reflect that conviction, um, which is rooted in a kind of fundamental notion of human nature um, and, and a conviction that that ability is uh, is is um, widely distributed acro around the, across the population, that that needs to be allowed to flourish and that that needs to be rectified. Uh, and these ideas are, of course, associated with um, thinkers like R.H. Taney um, and a long lineage of um, egalitarian thinkers. Um, the the Atlee government's reforms, importantly, don't take account of, you know, questions about um, gender inequality. Um, unsurprisingly, we don't see much that in it at all about racial inequality. That's not surprising given the context of the time. And I think interestingly, there's also not a great deal on regional inequality, despite the fact that regional inequality, um, as Laura might, as Laura will, will, will um, might be able to uh, reflect on, is a major preoccupation of the interwar period and the depression, um, when um, some former industrial areas are much more hard hit than others. The project of the Atlee government uh, reflects a conviction. Um, that uh, the the state can be deployed to reduce inequalities in all sorts of different areas, including access to um, uh, jobs, access to education, access to health, um, and um, that uh, there is a sort of central and profound and important role of the state and of central planning in, in doing all of this. Steve, I want to bring you in here because you've thought a lot in your own work about public opinion on the labor government um, and how the public sort of responded to this agenda that it was the role of the state to tackle not just these inequalities of opportunity that I think Lee's did a great job of flagging up, but also inequalities of distribution, right? Because let us face the future, while it doesn't mention the word inequality, talks about fairness a lot, right? And fair shares and fair distribution of resources as well as presenting these kind of ideas that if we just had a true meritocracy, then the cream would rise to the top. And both of these are kind of controversial propositions for a government to be saying, this is the role of the state to ensure these types of equalities. So what was the reaction of the public in the 1940s to this idea that the state should be taking on this role? Well, I think, um, I mean, I think the argument had really been made for the Labour government, uh, for the Labour Party, before 1945, by the experience of the Second World War. Um, so so th th there was a massive increase in taxation. Um, so, you know, sacrifice, you know, th th that Churchill himself had to introduce, imagining it, that would then be, you know, after the war had, had gone and he'd been re-elected Prime Minister or something, then, then there would be tax cuts again. But all Labour did was sustain those increases that had already been made. So in a way, it was it was quite a conservative um, sort of approach, really. Or the, like I say, the hard work had been done. Um, I mean, progressives have been banging on the door about the unfairness of unemployment, about how the North was being, you know, sacrificed for the for the South and all of that before the war. Nobody was really paying too much attention. It it, it needed the, the the wartime crisis and the need for the country to pull together at least at some level. 
for for the, those kind of progressive egalitarian arguments to be made. And and all Labour really needed to do was say, look, all of that sacrifice that we made, all of those things, all that that rejigging, the expansion of government um, that had occurred during the war, we're going to just continue it. We're going to make it permanent. You know, the NHS um, that that had its elements in the emergency medical service. You know, so in many ways, what Attlee was given it. Attlee was given that, that election and, and on on a plate really, and it's in order to make arguments that hadn't really landed before the war. And and to be to be honest, it, the further we are away from from the Attlee government, the, it's it's. It's striking what it didn't do about certain areas of of, of equality, um, where where the argument hadn't really been made as strongly as maybe it might in, in other areas in terms of class inequality. Um, so, Attlee turned his back on equal pay for women, you know, saying it was a nice idea, but we can't afford it, right? And so that was parked. And in terms of education, certainly of, of opportunity, if you thought that was important. Um, the Attlee government just accepted the um, the reforms to the education system that R.A. Butler, the Conservative Education Minister, had had introduced. So private education was left untouched. Uh, grammar schools, secondary moderns, that that kind of middle class, working class, secondary divide was was retained. And so, and I mean, let let's let's not go down the, you know the route of attitudes towards um, you know the empire and. And, and black immigration that, that happened after the war, um, which was rather unfortunate as far as Labour's um, attitude was. So, so in some ways, I mean, I'm, I'm not, I don't want to diss the Attlee government for what it did do, but but the more you kind of look at it, the distance we get, the, it's surprising the limits to its sense of what equali- what was relevant to the idea of equality. Well, I think to pick up on that, it's also the lessons of history to a degree, right? And the extent to which the Attlee government failed to appreciate how much work would really need to be done in order to create a level playing field. And I think you look at some of these ministers in the Attlee government who, if they weren't like Ernie Bevan, who hadn't gone to university at all, but just was a sort of outsized mind, you know, most had gone to Oxbridge, but a few had come up through the grammar school system, right, and had made it to university from a working class background. And they perhaps wrongly, including Education Minister Ellen Wilkinson, right, kind of understood grammar schools as an opportunity to lift working class people, um, you know, out of their background and to give them opportunities. And that wasn't divorced from an understanding that you needed to kind of level the playing field in other ways to provide people with a greater baseline of inequality. So things like free school meals and free school milk, which, you know, notoriously lasted until Margaret Thatcher, you know, initially known as Margaret Thatcher Milk Snatcher, Right, um, you know, took free school milk out of the classroom, but it was put in place by the Atlee government on a large scale, right? And and the welfare state and the NHS, as um, Steve mentioned, you know, are they're seen as a kind of leveling up that then allows, in the mind of the Atlee government, I think working class children to to start on a level playing field with their peers, and then all you needed to do, so they thought, was just to kind of provide that level playing field, and then people could rise. And the best students would end up at grammar schools and you would have this meritocracy. And that turned out not to be right, right? Because I think we'll talk more in future podcasts, Steve, particularly about you know, racial inequalities um, and the effect of migration after the Second World War to the metropole. But you had regional, racial, and other real inequalities that made it difficult 
for people from certain backgrounds to avail themselves of the opportunities of the educational system, which effectively rewarded a self-reinforcing cadre, right, of, um, of middle-class professionals. And I think that speaks to um, Michael Young's thesis, right, in The Rise of the Meritocracy, Lees, about the ways in which the meritocracy becomes not a self-renewing kind of best and the brightest of each generation, but, um, you know, becomes a, an aristocracy of a new type that's just self-perpetuating and very closed as a system. And so I think very few people know, and maybe you want to speak a bit about this, Lee, is about the fact that the term meritocracy, when Young coins it, is actually pejorative, right? I mean, you heard in particular, you know, I mean, politicians still to this day use it as, oh, we should aspire to a meritocracy. But a meritocracy was certainly not, in Young's mind, something you should be aspiring to achieve. Right. Do you want to speak a bit to that, Lise? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I feel like at this point, um, given the glut of books, some very good books um, and some less good books, which have come out over the last couple of years on the concept of meritocracy, I think m many people interested in the term will now be aware that, of course, it was coined originally as a pejorative because that seems to have been a kind of you know, common theme. I often meet people who go, oh, you've worked on Michael Young. Oh, did you know that meritocracy was coined as a pejorative, to which I nod <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> So um, the, uh, the hazards of being a female academic, sorry, for, I'll just back up and say what the rise of the meritocracy was. Um, so the rise of the meritocracy um, is a 1958 um, book, which was written by Michael Young. And it's a very curious book. It is uh, published in the form of a sociology PhD thesis from the year 2033. And in this PhD thesis, there is a sociologist, um, uh, kind of a, a, a anonymous narrator, um, who is describing effectively how the world um, from the position of 1958 onwards until 2033 had become stratified according to intelligence and professional ability. Um, and um, while this had been, you know, done perhaps with positive intentions, uh, it had ultimately produced this terrible dystopia with tremendous inequality baked into it, um, which ultimately results in a kind of an uprising um, and uh, the, the death of the fictional narrator. Uh, spoiler alert. Um, now, what's important about the rise of the meritocracy is that it is written in response or in reaction basically to grammar schools, to the 11 plus exam. It is a rebuttal uh, against the principle of educational selection, um, which had been inculcated in the 1944 uh, Butler Act and um, which was sort of the, 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 the foundation of the tripartite system of education. Um, so in some ways it's part of, well, in many ways it's part of the um, debate uh, or argument for comprehensivization of education and for the expansion of education more broadly. Um, but it's an incredibly rich and complex text. Um, and um, I think it needs to be understood through a lot of different lenses. So one of the kind of real targets in the text is Fabian ideas about national efficiency and social engineering. Um, so you see kind of repeated attacks on um, the sort of school of thought advocated um, by the webs, by, by Fabians more generally, um, and which Young very much associated with the Attlee government, of which he'd been an important part, that um, if you just organize society rationally and bureaucratically enough, 
uh, you can create better outcomes for people. So it's kind of an attack on the notion of a sci of scientific social organization itself. Um, my own take on it goes a little further than that, though, too. So I think a lot of commentators would agree on that. I think that in many ways, it's also an attack on the centrality of work to the post-war Atlee government project. So um, Young later in his life would be very kind of critical of the centrality of full employment to the Atlee government's political project. And again, as I say, the word equality is not in let us face the future, but jobs for all is, right? So the the, the Atlee government's kind of post-war settlement was very much premised on a, on a commitment to full employment, which remained central to the politics, um, social democratic politics of the next um, 30, 20, 20 years, let's say. Um, and um, Young was very concerned about the ways in which this emphasis on work uh, didn't include the experiences of non-working people. And he was very concerned specifically with women um, who he in some ways very problematically understands as non-workers. And he's not right about that. Of course, women are starting to enter the workforce at greater numbers than ever before at this point. But nonetheless, he puts them into that category. He's very concerned with the elderly uh, with the un and with the unemployed. Um, and he is reacting to a real emphasis on a tradition of male labor within the labor movement. So in the rise of the meritocracy, when there's finally this overthrowing of the meritocracy, it is women who lead uh, the, the revolution and who are very central to that, uh, that, that overthrow. Um, so it is, um, the rise of the meritocracy is about educational selection. It's about uh, an attack on uh, Fabianism and sort of scientific social engineering. It's also about the centrality of work and about the kind of elision and overlooking of women and other people who Young saw as non-workers within the post-war Attlee government project. That's really, that's interesting, um, that, that's, that, that, the, the way you summarise that, because, because obviously um, Labour traditionally, from, from the Attlee government onwards, was, was actually probably more comfortable with dealing with class inequalities, workplace inequalities, at least in terms of getting people jobs and making sure they were paid, or at least supporting trade unions so they could get their wages up. Um, and that's why they they probably overlooked women and I didn't take them as being that important because you because the trade unions being mostly male um, bodies but also um that by folks I mean I get, I get the impression at least from because I've, I've read some of your stuff uh, very good as it is that that while while young is, is kind of interesting to sort of frame of inequality or, or or to look at family um he was looking at it quite a I think you were saying look at traditional maybe sort of sexist idea of you know, that's where women should be. Um, and a feminist would say, I mean, feminists would say, and obviously feminists were certainly, you know, third wave feminists um, getting getting going around about that point. Um, the, the family is the site of inequality, you know, the site of patriarchy. And that, and that of course, raises all kinds of awkward questions for progressives, uh, most of whom at this point are male as well. Um and so it's a whole box of tricks, which 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 really, um, while they haven't really dealt with the the, the issue of um, class inequality, progressives in, in the Labour Party, they they haven't really addressed the other the, that other issue either. Um, but then, but then finally, because um, I will shut up, um, he he's also criticising the sort of Fabian top down way of achieving equality. That equality is something that's done to people, that people aren't necessarily involved in it. That it's it's not bottom up, it's top down, which is always. I mean, there are you know different 
projects, and we can maybe talk about those. Um, but um, that's to do, that's the traditional progressive Labour way. It's top down. Well, and that speaks to I think the kind of contradictions of the Attlee government, and also the contradictions of early mid-century Labour politics. Because on one hand, you have this strong Fabian strand, right? This emphasize, emphasis on the top down, the emphasis on planning, the emphasis on um, efficiency, social engineering um, that Lee's raised and, and Steve, you've, you've also commented on. But on the other hand, you have this kind of communitarian um, ethical socialism that dates back to R.H. Taney um, and, you know, who was very much prized by, um, by New Labour um, and, and subsequently, but whose ideas about equality kind of were deeper, both in terms of a, a broader Christian socialism, but also an emphasis on an equality and of outcome. And when Tani, late in his life, um, writes on inequality after the Second World War, and he says this isn't just about creating meritocracy, but it's about creating a more truly equal society that does involve a equality of outcome. And this speaks to an idea that I think was central to Young, um, but is also something, Steve, that you've looked at, right, which is the idea of community um, and how and if the state can help to kind of foster a broader sense of, of community. And the Second World War, I mean, Steve mentioned how the Second World War really provided an opportunity for the labor government to, um, you know, it created a new politics of the possible. But it also created this arguably sort of short-lived moment of a kind of community and a sense of national unity, right? But how then became the question, do you hold on to that, not in a period of national crisis? And I think we could ask that as well as we come out, knock wood, of the current pandemic, right? How can we hold on to that spirit of sacrifice of people banging pots and pans on their front step, you know, in honor of the NHS that we had a year ago um, and start to think about what a real equality of, um, of sacrifice to make a better Britain would look like. Steve, do you want to come in on that? Yeah, because it's because um, even during the, the Attlee government and and, bef- and and after it, um, it wasn't simply just top down, um, although that was that was a dominant approach to how do you get equality? You, you implement various policies onto people. Um, I mean, through culture, I mean, that's kind of a, rev- a relevant um, issue today um, that you could try and build on um, the, the kind of egalitarian spirit, which they thought had emerged out of the Second World War and embed it in different institutional settings, um, in different kind of cultural contexts. So um, Bevan and Aaron Bevan, who was Minister of Housing, his ambition was to have council housing, which which had people from different classes. It wasn't going to simply be a working class place. It would be a place for the middle class doctors, as well as their patients, could all live together. So it was that sense of breaking down barriers. Um, comprehensive education, um, when Labour you know, properly embraced it in the 50s, um, it, be, it was seen as being a way of breaking down barriers between the classes, that at least you would have inequality there in the classroom, even if you didn't have it outside. And then more radically, um, there were those that talked about um, industrial democracy, which was never really a great interest of many trade unions, it has to be said, so that workers could um, you know, learn and le- learn, learn to be their own kind of managers at some, at some level, which of course, nationalised industries weren't anything like that. So you, so you, you ask the question, how do we you know, think about building on the sacrifice and, and the 
the, the COVID crisis and, and a sense of unity that that kind of generated, at least in some places. Well, without without culture, without institutions, without with people's lived experience actually changing, um, then that's that's that becomes something of an issue. Um, I mean, I would I would say one of the barriers um, to Labour and progressives really achieving the, the the degree of equality which they they would have aspired to, many have aspired to, is 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 culture, is people themselves, the you know their opposition to. Um, I mean, one reason why Labour failed to really address um, racial inequality in, until you know quite late on was because there were a lot of racists voted for the Labour Party. Um, that you know, in terms of um, attitude towards women. That were, um, you know, a lot of people resisted, you know, were opponents of feminism. Um, and I mean, I remember from 1992 in the wake of um, Labour's, you know, yet another electoral defeat in, in Southern, the Southern discomfort um, sort of researches into why Labour lost. And, and they discovered that when, when those kinds of voters, the people that didn't vote Labour in 92, voted to Tories, working class people, all of them, when they were asked, you know, about Labour and equality and, and its policies, they said, oh, well, that's, that's simply um, going to give money to gypsies, gays and, you know, lesbians, you know, not people like us. So, so culture plays a, a, big, a big important role in all of this in, in, as, as an impediment to to progressives really achieving what they would like to do or at least maybe using it as an excuse so then we can't we can't do anything about it because the people don't want it so in these difficulties in terms of achieving a real sort of sense of community or um equality of experience are not just down then arguably steve would say to the failures of the labor party but also to at least what the party perceives to be the failures of its public the you know, that labor voters do not really want to see this type of equality on the ground. They want to to remain in their own communities and not to have a, um, you know, a shared experience that breaks down those those communal barriers between different parts of society. Um, Liz, what are your thoughts on, on that point? Just to kind of um, return a little bit to this question about um, community and um, this sort of um, mythology of the sort of Second World War period and the Atlantic government as this sort of moment of uh, communitarian feeling and of social solidarity that, of course, has been, you know, significantly problematized by many, many, many different scholars, um, including Steve um, in his some of his excellent work. Um, and, you know, it's important to kind of just note that, you know, the the, the the mythology of the Second World War was a deliberately constructed one that served a political project for the Atlee government as they tried to kind of advance a notion of national community that would, you know, be served by the institutions that they were associated with. There is a long tradition of left thinking about uh, community and solidarity, um, which... Um, is often referred to as, say, an ethical socialist tradition or a communitarian socialist tradition. Um, and I think that that's, you know, important and it's valuable. I think often left-wing appeals to community in their own right can fall on deaf ears. I think that very often what creates good community is good institutions um, and, uh, and, and a functioning society. And that the project of socialist governments, the project of left governments, um, should be to invest in that first and foremost um, uh, rather than idealizing community in the abstract. I think that that often ends up 
um, serving a slightly or um, that that often ends up um, a little bit hollow. I think that point the whether the job of the government should be to establish institutions that allow community to to grow organically on its own by creating either sort of you know other types of equalities, um, inequality of sacrifice, equality of opportunity, and then letting a sort of social or cultural equality grow organically. Um, does that become, in a sense, an excuse for the left to abandon a real commitment to trying to achieve that broader cultural or community inequality through government action? Do we see the labor governments from the late 60s onwards through new labor kind of jettisoning an attempt to actively achieve, um, you know, a broader sense of, of social unity and community because they rationalize that it just is either unpopular with the electorate or unachievable um, through, through government action? Well, I think, I think um, certainly if you, if you look at the road to the new Labour government, um, that there, I mean, first of all, Labour is often not in office, so it can't really do anything. So that that's something it has to think. How how do we win? How do we win elections? Do we win elections talking about community? Do we win elections talking about you know our aspirations for a greater society of equality of sacrifice and all of that kind of stuff, or do we just prioritise the fact we can make the economy grow, right? And we can benefit you materially, and that's that's the main emphasis. And and of course that that's how you know New Labour gets into office. I mean, apart from the Conservatives falling apart. Um, they, they have a kind of critique which is grounded in a very weakened sense of, of equality. I mean, th- this is bearing in mind that it's during the 1980s under Neil Kinnock um, that the word equality, you know, they, they say, well, look, if, if we start, if we, do, if we mention the word equality, people start to, um, you know, think, well, who's going to benefit from that? So it, it, it didn't have the greatest of, of connotations for, for many people. At least that's what Kinnock's... Um, polling people saying so they started talking about fairness um which was you know quite what that meant but it quite mean equality but even new labor even new labor which emphasized um you know we're not going to change the top rate of tax we're not going to their emphasis is, is on um the economy making it more efficient and all of that still came into office with a windfall tax um which they you know then invested in in helping people into jobs which you know that might be seen as a kind of addressing certain issues, but 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 most notably um, had a very focused um, approach to um, to inequality by saying we need to res- we need to focus our resources on the young, on children through Sure Start, and they and they had a a a, a project to invest money into the especially deprived communities. I mean, this is something which you know Polly Toynbee has talked about. Recently, it's kind of under the radar, really, um, to to put money into especially deprived communities and to allow them to spend that money as they thought fit to address certain issues which they thought were very important. So it was kind of it wasn't quite as much top down as as it once had been, um, but the, and yet and 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 they they achieved certain positive sort of real positives in those local communities. Um, but but what New Labour didn't do was address the basic inequality um, in terms of um, the top one percent or 025 percent. I mean, the the huge rise in in, in income inequalities that occurred under Thatcher d- 
didn't really change. Um, I mean, Labour also introduced um, things about about you know addressing racial discrimination and, and about, about sexuality, and there were address certain issues to do with gender as well. Um, but you know, it, there was a weakening, and it, and it was an emphasis on opportunity uh, rather than outcome. I mean, that that was for sure. I think the '90s were a moment, right, when the thought was. If you grow the entire pie and everyone gets a bigger piece, then everyone is better off. And there wasn't really a thinking about how the persistence of inequality in and of itself might be a social problem. And I think for a lot of policymakers, um, you know, social planners, and the public more broadly, um, you know, that question of the problem of inequality in and of itself was really put on their radar by the work of Thomas Piketty a few years ago emphasizing the fact that since the 1990s in countries including most prominently the United States and Britain you'd see return to levels of income inequality not seen since the Great Depression right um, and the implication was that the new labor government was culpable for this right but I guess the question becomes you know how did they understand their mission and I think Steve is right that some of the stuff under the radar particularly with child poverty that the labor government did was really was not just about raising all ships, but was specifically about targeting certain types of disadvantage. But there is a broader question about whether in the 1990s, and this is something that Corbyn really latched on, right, there was a failure on the part of the left to appreciate the continued salience of inequality of outcome as a problem. And do we think this is something that now Starmer is, is going to have to revisit as he builds a platform for labor moving forward? Um, I, you know, I really agree um, with your analysis, Steve, of new labor um, as uh, reducing, you know, certain social inequalities through spending while um, not tackling uh, equality overall. Um, and I also agree, Laura, with your um, your point that I think inequalities come back on the political radar in a way much more forcefully in the last ten years. Uh, since the financial crisis, and I think you're right to emphasize Piketty, um, than, than it had been in the past. I wonder to what extent when we have this conversation, we're sometimes alighting inequality with national, or uh, the word equality with nationalization, and to what extent we are thinking about, um, when we talk about preoccupation with, with equality or inequality, we're actually talking about what role we expect the state to play in addressing those inequalities, right? Do we, ex, you know, do do we do we expect a labor government to have a certain attitude towards the nationalization of certain kinds of services, towards taxation, um, and is that what's actually being signposted when we make those arguments? Well, the, the, it was Crossland who said that basically nationalization, or at least further nationalization, won't make any difference to. To equality and and the focus should be on culture and on education and on other things. Um, so, I mean, I mean the Cor- the Corbynites certainly believed that nationalisation would was key in some respects. I mean, as, as in taking taking certain profitable bits of the economy utilities out of the hands of the private private sector and using that money in different ways and using and using the fact that they were being um, put put into state hands. As a means of empowering workers, you know, in terms of industrial participation, management, and democracy, and whatever. Um, I mean, I, I don't know that that, that Starmer himself um, thinks of nationalisation as b- playing a key role. 
I mean, certainly the workplace, regulating the workplace, making, you know, you know, make, making sure that people are paid the right, the right amounts in the right conditions, but through government regulation. I don't get the impression. I mean, I think one of the things he's going to ditch is is the McDonald's stuff um, from the 2019 manifesto. Um, but but the state clearly has a role. I mean, on, under 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 Starmer's Labour, it's just not necessarily in the direct way that um, that maybe some some on the left would would like and have always liked. Um, but Laura, you've you, you've got something you want to say? Well, I think that I agree with you, Steve, that the conversation about nationalization has moved on, and that in that there are discussions about nationalization, even to a degree um, under Corbyn. You know, they were about specific circumstances, either whether specific utilities could be harnessed to the public good or about whether others, including parts of the privatized rail system, right, whether it was attacking the shibboleth that privatization is automatically more efficient than nationalization. But the idea which you see to return to the beginning of our discussion in the 45 manifesto in Let Us Face the Future, that nationalization is a good in and of itself and that the nationalization of industries will, will solve problems, will create a more equal and fairer society. I think that's a conversation that has fallen into kind of the dustbin of the 20th century, right, and is not where the left is now. But I think that other question about when you think about Labour Party policy, is it just about high taxes, right? That is a, a sticky wicket for Starmer as he moves forward, because it's very hard, particularly looking at the funding gap in social care, to not say, as even Johnson has been forced to say, right, we should raise taxes. But for labor, the question is how to do that fairly, how to do that in a way that that does draw equally on the resources of, of the country and ask in an equitable way um, from, from British citizens to contribute to, um, to the continued funding of the National Health Service, right? And... And I think that Starmer and, and Rachel Reeves have been walking this fine line, trying to say, not we don't think there should be more funding for the NHS, but we think that the inequities in how the prime minister is proposing to close that gap are very problematic. Right? So I think tax is something that is still, still a persistent and tricky issue in maybe a way that nationalization no longer is for the, for the left. I mean, Star, I mean, I saw I saw an interview I saw an interview that Starmer gave um, on on Sky News um, in in the wake of the um, social care proposals that you know emphasised it was all going to come from national insurance contributions, and um, and Beth Rigby, the Sky the Sky um, politics editor, just wanted him to say that Labour was committed or not to a wealth tax to fund all of this, um, rather than simply national insurance and. And she asked him about four or five times to commit himself. You know, are you even interested in a wealth tax? And and he he was using all these words. And it, in the it was kind of you could you could hear him. He was using words that yes, he was, but he didn't want to say it directly, right? And that's that's I think where the Labour Party has often been. That it, it I mean, Starmer echoes um, Wilson's phrase uh, or saying that the Labour Party is a is a moral crusade or it's nothing. And Labour's certainly often been afraid of the moral imperative. I mean, it's embraced as the moral imperative of, of equality, but it's afraid of the consequences of the moral imperative, the electoral consequences, and often fight shy 
of what might need to be done for good electoral reasons often, but but nonetheless. And I think that's where Starmer seems to be. He's kind of saying, yes, we do need this. This is a huge thing. COVID, the economy, the National Health Service, everything. Everything has been you know, thrown up in the air. Um, and yet he's still cautious and almost embarrassed to associate himself with a wealth tax. So what do we do about it? I mean, is the answer, in order to make a wealth tax within the realm of the kind of politically non-suicidal for, for Starmer and for the Labour Party to put forward, do we first have to kind of achieve a shift in the public mind in terms of what it would mean to be all in it together, right? And has COVID done that? Has it created an opportunity for people to say, okay, I have more and therefore I should give more because we're all in this together? Or was the pandemic a kind of short-lived blip on the radar that's already starting to fade, you know, in terms of public consciousness and public perception about the common wheel um, into the background. And I guess this um, ties back to the thinking after the Second World War, right? Did the Second World War create a, a permanent shift in how Britain saw each other as a, as a community and as, um, you know, having a shared national interest? Or did it create a, a much more short-lived moment of um, group consciousness that faded pretty quickly after 1945? So um, here's where I think that sometimes a rhetoric of community um, or a kind of observation that, for example, the COVID crisis has you know, created a sense of social solidarity that is in some way akin to the Second World War. Here's where I think that analysis really falls short. Um, the changes, the political changes um, that were able to occur in 1945 um, were able to occur um, out of the context of a world war, um, as, uh, and, and they were able to occur out of the context of decades of socialist organizing and serious struggle on the part of the left. Um, and I'm much more pessimistic about the electoral possibilities for Starmer or for a Starmer-like uh, labor government um, to to actually create the shift that you we are discussing. You know, I think that um, the last decade has changed the conversation to some extent, um, but I don't think that it has properly produced a shift in the balance of power, which would actually favor redistributive policies and better outcomes um, for 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 workers, um, for young people, for. Um, for other uh, economically and socially marginalized groups um, in any meaningful way. I mean, I, I think that basically what is lacking right now is a kind of political uh, political will and force. And I think that, frankly, the left needs to be a lot more strident um, about how unacceptable some of the inequalities that are being continuously propagated by the Johnson government are. Um, and I think the left should should be more forceful. And I, you know, I think um, I think that many aspects of the Corbyn project were right. I think that the mechanisms through which they were delivered were unsuccessful. And there is always the challenge um, of of building a, a a properly you know radical politics in the context of a relatively um, socially and economically conservative country like Britain. Um, but in order to um, to get anywhere, I think the left actually needs to be committed to shifting not just uh, uh, a few policy positions, um, but the terrain of the discourse. Um, and I'm, I'm personally concerned that the Starmer uh, leadership is, is not committed enough to that. 
I mean, on the on on, on the back of that, I mean, it's it's interesting because I've uh, looked at the Ipsos Mori polls, which ask people what do they think are the you know most important issues facing Britain today, and and inequality slash poverty, they changed the issue at some point. Um, that that's always been, I mean, that's historically that's been very low, right? Um, and it's but it started rising from about five percent of you know that's five percent of people think it's the most important issue after 2010 started rising slowly but very incrementally and and although much was made of Jeremy Corbyn you know and the Overton window and if you make the case people will listen you know if you build it they will come though I mean at least so far as that that was that was considered made no impact you know the Jeremy Corbyn years made made no impact but it was it was the um the financial crash that started that started to rise then um, and it reached its highest point. I may have just contradicted myself here. It reached its highest point. 22% of people thought it was the most important issue facing Britain today, just after the 2019 general election. Since when it's kind of gone down, but it's higher than it's ever been. Just, you know, but but maybe that's, it's the context. Maybe that that's still a relatively small number of people think it's the most important issue. Um, so, I mean, I'd... I, I honestly don't know. You know, if if Starmer started to talk about inequality in a more forceful way, maybe, maybe it would make a difference. But is there a reason why he isn't that he thinks that's going to put people off of that he votes he needs? I don't know. It's it's a dilemma. I understand what what you say, Lisa, but it's it's a genuine dilemma. And I mean, you know, frankly, at this moment in time, why not? You know, we're in we're in a great moment of crisis. Where the government has got a leveling up agenda, it says, but is failing. Why not um, take you know take that on board and and focus more centrally on it? And maybe maybe Steve, to end this on a more optimistic note, um, I'll pick up and I'll um, if either of you follow Steve and I on Twitter, we had a bit of a back and forth about this before the podcast. But I actually think um, I take a more optimistic read of the um, Ipsos Mori polling you've pointed to, in that people. If you take out the sort of COVID and Brexit blips, which you know are not going to remain in a few years' time issues, the trend has been for inequality to be the third most salient issue that most voters will identify. Trailed only, I mean, significantly trailing, but um, trailing only to the NHS and the economy writ large. And for many people, probably inequalities folded into the economy when they identify the economy as their most important issue. And so inequality is the third most important issue, arguably, and has been. Um, for British voters over the past few decades. And I think that provides an opportunity for the Labour opposition if they can work out how to harness it in ways that deal with their own anxieties about seeming like a throwback to the 1970s and you know, et cetera, et cetera, and instead can make a positive case that a progressive government should be using the state to to attack all three of these types of inequality that we've discussed over the past 40 minutes or so, and to create a more just and equal society for Britons, in which the types of insecurities and anxieties which have plagued so many people um, in the United Kingdom over the past decade, particularly since the stock market crash, um, but well before it, are, are ameliorated. I think there's a role for the state to do that, right? And arguably, there's a will for the public, even looking at that um, the Ipsos Mori polling you cite um, to see that type of change take place. So maybe that's a more optimistic note to end on than Steve is the the pessimist. I'm the Ted Lasso of our um, duo, right? <laughs> but 
do we want to throw in any final words, um, Steve or Lise? Uh, you know, I I um I find the conservatives' rhetoric of leveling up really interesting in that it explicitly avoids any explicit reference to equality or inequality, right? Um, it's a way of kind of speaking to those concerns um, while keeping your project very, very wooly, right? It's, you can level up, but what's the level and to where? And no one is ever making any real normative claims about where it is you're all collectively trying to head with policy and uh, yeah, where you're trying to head as a political community. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm deeply um, skeptical about about where that's going um and uh i think i think the left should be um should be on you know uh on the offensive um in terms of uh what that project entails um i mean i i would end on just saying that you know the labor the labor governments the progressives in general you know they, they've achieved without them very little might have been achieved in terms of equality but there is clearly you know much much work to do and um, and the other thing is, um, I've yet to see Ted Lasso, so I don't know how much of an insult that was from you, Laura. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was probably more self-mocking than anything else, Steve. You should add it to your Netflix queue. Do you, well, this has been a great conversation, Steve. You're going to take point um, on our next podcast. Do you want to give a bit of a teaser before we go? Um, yes, we're going to be talking about um, Hugh Gateskill, um, the reputation of Hugh Gateskill, why so many people don't like him, never liked him. Um, was it, is he a model for Starmer or is he the anti-model for Starmer? And Greg, Greg Rosen is, is, has agreed to uh, be our guest at that in, for, for that in November. So stay tuned, guys. Um, thank you so much, Liz, for joining us today. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. That's a wrap, I guess. Thank you.